0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're continuing our series in the book of Daniel called Singing the Lord's Song in a Strange Land. So let's turn to Daniel chapter 2 verses 14 to 23 as Dr. Neufeld presents his message, No Fear in Death.
1: When Paul was facing death, expecting to be executed, he wrote in 2 Timothy 4 verse 18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He had in mind not his temporal, but his ultimate eternal well-being. That's why he also wrote, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award me on that day. The fact is, we will all, if Christ delays his coming, face our own death. And in that hour, we will be fearful or we will be confident. I'm going to say that counting on God's promises makes all the difference. Whether we lie dying in our beds or dragged out into the street and are beheaded, there is in every believer a real sense that the Lord will eternally rescue me from every evil. What can man do to me? How aware Daniel was of the afterlife is a matter of debate. We know that in chapter 2, he was facing the possibility of death. Was he counting on God's eternal promises? We do know that in the last chapter of his book, that is in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he speaks about those whose names are written in the book and of the general resurrection of the dead, some to everlasting life, he says, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We also know that when Abraham died, it was said of him, he was gathered to his people. We know that David said that he knew that he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Indeed, in Psalm 16, verse 10, David is confident that God will not abandon his soul to Sheol. And then in the next verse, verse 11, he says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, David was confident that his pleasure in God would never cease. Even death could not take that away. This was the faith that was Daniel's inheritance. And so I'm assuming that armed with this heritage, he is able to face the threat of death with a great deal of calm and confidence. You know, as a young graduate student in the school of the the king's wise men and counselors, Daniel was now facing his first brush with death in Babylon. There would be more in the future, but it is this first threat of death that sets the stage of how he handles all the future threats of death, even the very famous one in the lion's den that, that we all know so well. That one occurred in the later years of his life. But where has his confidence come from? In Second Timothy one twelve, Paul would say, I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. See, Paul meant by that 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 God would guard the gospel and that God would guard him so that his lifetime of gospel ministry would not be spent in vain. This is sure knowledge, and Paul had great confidence, and this led him to the place of his own death. But let's get back to Daniel. The king has had a disturbing dream about a rock smashing a statue, and now the king feels vulnerable. He's looking for an interpretation to his dream so that he might know what he's up against. But because he suspects that his wise men will tell him only what he wants to hear and not what he needs to hear, And because he suspects that his wise men really are a sham and also suspects that they're unable to interpret dreams at all, they only make things up. And so he demands that the wise men tell him both the content of what he dreamt and what the dream means. And only then can he be sure that they're telling him the truth. And so King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon threatens all the wise men of Babylon with death. Death if you can't tell me what I've dreamt, and death if you can't tell me what the dream actually means. And of course, none of the wise men are able to do this thing. And since Daniel is a new graduate of that program, he faces death along with everyone else. The king's edict is for everyone. The king seems determined to end the the history of magicians and sorcerers in Babylon for good. And when we last left off, men were looking for Daniel and his three friends in order to kill them. And of course, they found him along with all the other wise men. Let's, let's pick up the text from that point on, and I'm reading Daniel chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. What is of some interest in this short paragraph is that the man Arioch has a title. He's called the captain of the king's guard. You know, other translations call him the commander of the king's guard. Yet some claim that his title can be translated as the chief of the butchers of the king. I mean, this man has a deadly role. If the king has enemies, this man is the contract killer for the king. He will have no hesitation murdering those who need killing. His presence must have inspired a great deal of fear and dread, even among the king's counselors. It took but a nod from the king to Ariok, and you are a dead man. I think most people would have tried to stay out of this man's way. And Daniel's response is not panic. Rather, he answers, says our text, with prudence and discretion, or with a great deal of wisdom and tact. Rather than being frozen in fear, he has a steady hand and finds out the details. He immediately engages Arioch in conversation. I want you to notice that Daniel does at least four things. Now, first of all, I note that he must have fostered some kind of a positive relationship with Arioch in the past. I mean, he must have, because Arioch seems ready to engage Daniel, who's but a new grad. And even though Daniel would still be a fairly young man here, perhaps just around 18 years of age, through tact, he got an audience with the king, an audience that had been arranged by Arioch. I mean, did you notice how similar this is to way back in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8? There we read, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. See, there's a pattern in Daniel. He identifies those who have authority over him, and rather than either ignore them or stay out of their way or even rebel against them, he befriends them. He acknowledges their authority and works within the parameters that have been given to him. Given what we continue to learn about Daniel, I I think the reason for that is that Daniel understands the sovereignty of God. He believes that whoever is over him has been put there by the hand of God who controls all things. See, I also noticed that Daniel was never strident. He's respectful. He was a friend with a deadly man who did not worship or fear his God. He fostered relationships with unbelievers. I think that's one of the keys to his success. There's so much to learn from that. Dealing with government officials, dealing with employers, dealing with educators, professors in university, I mean, the list goes on and on. Wise Christians who want to make an impact for the gospel learn ways to find relationships with powerful people fostering respect in a way that pays off in a moment of crisis. Secondly, I notice that unlike the magicians of Babylon, Daniel is forthright, whereas the others were arguing with the king that this was an impossible command and trying to change what they couldn't change. Daniel is forthright and honest. He needed time with the king. And then, for here we see that he must have had a relationship with Arioch. Arioch leads him directly to the king. God granted him favor. Daniel received an audience with a king, and as he did, we hear him not arguing with the king. I mean, he had accepted the fact that the king's mind was made up. Was the king asking for the impossible? Well, yes, he was. Was this an irrational demand, born out of a deep sense of insecurity? I think that's true, too. But nothing could change the situation. God was still sovereign. So all Daniel does is request the king to appoint time for him. Daniel doesn't even tell the king how much time he needs, he simply leaves it to the king to appoint for him how much time he's going to get. Thirdly, after having received what he asked for, he doesn't panic, but he immediately meets with his godly friends and goes to prayer. Let's read the text, Daniel 2, 17 and 18. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. See, I really do find this a beautiful picture. Four young men, probably in their late teens, on their knees, recognizing that their only hope is for God to intervene. They will plead with God for mercy. They will act in a way that they would act for the rest of their lives. They will depend upon God as to whether or not they will live and die. What an example that is for us today. If I live, it's because of the hand of God. And if I die, I will be transported into the very presence of God. All is the grace of God, all is in His hands. I will kneel before Him and make my requests there. Our lives, whether
0: we live or die, are in the hands of God. Our hope is in Him. We'll continue to study the book of Daniel in just a moment. You know, recently we received this note from a listener. They said, just want to say how much I'm enjoying these Q&A days. Dr. John's solid, engaging responses are excellent. Yep, we did an entire week of answering many of the questions we received, and this listener, along with so many others, shared how much it meant to them. Responses like these remind us and encourage us that people right across the country are thirsting for effective, relevant Bible teaching. Well, this is the mission of Back to the Bible Canada, and your support makes this program possible. So please consider how you might offer a gift to support the ministry or even consider becoming a monthly partner. You can do either by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visiting us online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible
1: with Dr. John Newfeld. When Daniel and his three friends went to prayer, remember with the threat of death looming over their heads, the passage says, they sought the mercy of the God of heaven. Now, at this juncture, it does seem fitting to notice this phrase, the God of heaven. It's it's repeated four times in this chapter. And that's fascinating because that phrase is rarely used in the Bible. It's used twice in Genesis 24 when, when Abraham was sending his servant back to the country of his relatives to get a wife for his son. It's used once in the book of Jonah when Jonah is explaining to the Gentile sailors on board the ship that he is a Hebrew who fears the God of heaven, he says. And it's used in Psalm 136 when when describing the victory God gave Israel over their enemies. It seems to me that the phrase is used when describing the relationship which Israel has with the Gentiles. Now, in Daniel, Daniel uses the phrase four times, and after him, Ezra will use that same phrase eight times, and Nehemiah will use it another four times. See, what I'm saying is this that the phrase was rarely used in the Bible and then only dealing with the Gentiles. But after the Babylonian defeat of Jerusalem and in the latter part of the First Testament, the phrase the God of heaven is now frequently used. So why is that and what does the phrase mean? Now, one of the reasons for this title for God may have been to emphasize the fact that the God of Israel is also the God of heaven, meaning the entire creation. There's a confidence that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is also the God of Babylon. He doesn't just rule over the Hebrews or over the promised land. He rules the cosmos. And therefore, Daniel knows that he is as much in God's sovereign care than if he had been a young man serving under King Solomon in Jerusalem at the height of Israel's power and glory. Since he is the God of heaven, one is always in his immediate care. Let me put it in ways that will ring in our hearts. Whether we're on the battlefield or on our beds, our God is the God of heaven. Whether I'm 25 and in great health or 85 and my health is failing, my God is the God of heaven. Nothing has changed. Whether I just signed a business contract that will net millions of dollars or I've just lost my job, my God is the God of heaven. See, this phrase inspires the confidence that David had when, when he said, If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. And so Daniel is visited by Ariok, the the butcher of the king's enemies, and announces that Daniel is to be killed along with the other wise men of Egypt. So what has changed? The God of heaven always rules. Things are exactly as they should be. So let's review what we've noticed about Daniel. First, Daniel had fostered friendship with unbelievers, and that included Arioch. He was able to engage him in questions. Second, Daniel was straightforward and truthful in his speech with the king and gained time to answer the king's request. And third, Daniel knew the power of corporate prayer, and he and his three friends now bowed the knee before the God of heaven. Finally, fourthly, Daniel also knew that in praying, he pled with God for mercy and that's what verse 18 says. It says the four young men appeal to God for mercy. See, grace is getting what we do not deserve, and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Look, I'm not saying that Daniel and his friends deserved death at the king's hand, but from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar, well, they did, and Daniel did not go to Nebuchadnezzar for mercy. He went to God. See, all prayer is in one sense a call for mercy. If I begin a prayer with the words, Oh, Lord, I don't deserve this. See, I'm not calling for mercy, but I'm calling for justice. See, mercy asks for that which it has no right to demand. See, whether we plead with God for the forgiveness of our sins through the cross of Christ, or whether we ask him to save our sick child from death, see, we never stand on our rights, but rather we come before a God who is both gracious and merciful. We appeal to God on the basis of his compassion. The most amazing thing about answered prayer is, is not that God acted on our behalf, but it is the reason why he acted. None of us come to God with clean hands. All we can do is appeal to his character as God. We don't do as some do. We don't demand things of God. We do as the great men and women of the past did. We, we come as beggars looking to the generous hand of our God to supply. Every answer to prayer then is an expression that God forgives and does not treat us as our sins deserved. Oh, oh the thanks that we owe him for his mercy. And God does respond to Daniel. Verse 19 says, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Or God told Daniel exactly what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt in his bedroom and what the dream actually meant. See, how did God do that? Well, we don't know, perhaps because it was in the night Daniel had his own dream, but I think Daniel 7 is probably the key to how God regularly spoke to Daniel. Verse 1 says, In the year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. See, dreams and visions seem to have been the way that God communicated with Daniel. But at any rate, once the vision had come, I I can only imagine Daniel's reaction. I mean, he knew that his life would be spared and that God was preparing him for a significant role in Babylon in the future. Daniel's response tells you everything about the kind of faith this young man had. Let's listen to his prayer, one section at a time. First, let's let's read verses 19b to 21a. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. See, Daniel begins by acknowledging that it is God alone who controls the, the flow of human events. In essence, Daniel says that God determines all of the events of history. See, Daniel knows that when he meets with the king, he's about to tell Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom will not endure. It will last just as long as God has determined that it will, no longer than that. When God changes a time or, or an era, that time or that era is over, and that kingdom will then pass on into history. And in that is an important application. See, God knows just how long our nation will last. He has determined its beginning, and he will determine its ending. Our nation is not an eternal nation. It will not endure forever, and it's simply not true to suspect that it will. Now to the latter part of verse 21. Daniel continues to pray. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. See, after acknowledging God's control over the nation, Daniel next acknowledges that human beings, and in fact entire nations, are exactly as wise and as powerful as God makes them to be. I mean, think of our world, I mean, with its amazing technology and inventions and abilities to communicate and its scientific discoveries, that it should be this way is determined by God. I imagine many times that, that some of us wonder, how can it have been that the discoveries in the last 150 years or so have been so vast? And the answer is, God has determined it for his purposes. Now to verse 22. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. See, here's a further extension of the principle. No culture discovers new things. We only discover things new to us. If we have learned of the power of splitting the atom, it's because God took away the darkness surrounding that mystery and allowed us to understand. Now to verse 23. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. See here's Daniel's conclusion. The God who determines the mysteries of all nations has determined that I and my friends should tell the king what no one else could. Daniel is saying that he knows that he and his friends have been chosen to direct the course of Babylon. And it is this revelation that would give the three friends confidence when thrown into the burning furnace and and Daniel when he was thrown into the lion's den. They would live and die on God's timetable alone can you and i have the same confidence when you complete your work god will call you to himself not before not after for it is god alone who determines your times and seasons so can't you see that you don't need to fear death you can be confident in your god who is the god of heaven our heavenly father great god of heaven thank you that you have determined our times. Our times are in your hands. And as we have noted, you are merciful, O Lord God, and we rest in your mercy, amen.
0: john this is a great message but it makes me think about those people that that don't deny their faith even when their 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 lives are being risked Uh, that young lady a columbine that was was killed because she wouldn't deny her faith missionaries that do that because they won't deny their faith what kind of faith is that
1: i think there's something that we need to nurture for a lifetime i mean that is that that deep sense that god's promises are always true that if God has spoken, we can bank our very lives on it. Because in the end, we're going to have to. Uh, we're all going to have to face our own death. So uh, now is the time to do it. I, th- I think there's this confidence in the promises of God.
0: Thanks so much, John. And join us again for Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Here with me to conclude today's broadcast is Isaac Dagno, team leader of Back to the Bible Canada's young adult ministry, In Doubt. Now, I know many of our listeners would be familiar with In Doubt, but for those who don't, Isaac, why don't you give us a quick summary of the ministry?
2: Yeah, definitely, thanks, Ben. Uh, Like you said, In Doubt is Back to the Bible Canada's young adult ministry. We have a weekly podcast that speaks into the relevant issues of life and faith that every young adult goes through, things like identity, relationships, faith, and so on bringing in a biblical foundation. We also have written resources like biblical articles, testimonies, and videos all on our site. I also have the privilege to visit churches, young adult groups, and conferences to speak about Bible engagement and other relevant topics.
0: So Isaac, why is a ministry specific to young adults so critical today?
2: But with more and more young adults leaving the church and their faith, something needs to be done. I find that many young adults aren't receiving the dialogue and conversation about these topics, uh, these tough topics. My generation needs truth told genuinely, and that's what we seek to do at In Doubt. Okay,
0: so where can people find out more about In Doubt and how they might be able to support us with a gift?
2: Everything can be found on our new site at indoubt.ca. All our podcasts, articles, and videos are all there. And there's also a donate button there as well.
0: Thanks so much, Isaac.
2: Yeah, thank you, Ben.
0: And remember, you can find out more about InDoubt by visiting indoubt.ca or by calling us at 1-800-663-2425. Thanks so much for joining us today on Back to the Bible Canada.